Welcome back to the third installment of the Fearless and Proud podcast, where we explore the lives of women soldiers, spies, and nurses during the Civil War. I'm Jerry Willis. Today, we'll talk about two women, one of whom you know, Harriet Tubman, the Underground Railroad conductor who led scores of slaves to freedom. You'll hear an incredible story from her time as a Union soldier and spy when she brought hundreds of African Americans to freedom in one single destructive raid at the very heart of Dixie. You may never have heard of our second subject, Loretta Janetta Velasquez who was the first Cuban-American woman to serve, and her life was no less surprising. We'll start with her dramatic story. Dr. Luis Stanella Borrego, adjunct professor at Miami-Dade College, author of The Risen Phoenix, describing Loretta Velasquez. Let's turn to Loretta now, and one of the first facts about her that I found shocking and amazing is that she elopes with an officer, apparently, in the Texas Army at the age of 14. Where were mom and dad? Tell us her origin story. Help us understand who her parents were, where she was from. She's the first Cuban woman soldier, correct? And uh, how did, what, she's such an iconoclast. How did this all start? She's born in the 1840s in Havana. To her, her family background is she comes from a well-to-do Spanish family. On her father's side, she claims descent um, from the famous Spanish painter Diego de Velázquez and his descendants who were governors in Cuba. Her mother is a French extraction and she gets sent to live with an aunt in New Orleans to kind of go to finishing school. And against the wishes of her traditional parents, she's always kind of a rebel. She's always kind of a, um, goes against the grain because she comes from this very elite background, at least that's what she tells us. She's with her aunt, she's studying with the Sisters of Charity in New Orleans, and they have already chosen who they want her to marry, this this fine Hispanic gentleman. And she meets this dashing uh, army man, really loves him, and makes the conscious decision, we think it was 14, it could have been 16, but she, she makes the conscious decision to say, you know what? I know this is going to hurt my parents. Um, I really have this sense of adventure. I'm going to go with this guy. We're going to start a family. And they eventually end up in uh, in St. Louis together, and they'll have a family. Now, the, there's, there's a, a kind of sad component here. Um, the three children she has with him do not survive childhood. They will die. Um, and it's this, this moment that marks her, because it's almost as if in the memoir, there's this moment on the eve of the Civil War after this plague runs through St. Louis where she makes it to something in her changes. And she says, I want something more. Because she talks about, especially growing up, I've always been different. I loved reading stories about warrior Spanish women, warrior Europeans, the warrior nun uh, fighting for a cause. And she sees as her model Joan of Arc. And there's always this this streak in her of independence. I want to do something that isn't just what a lady is supposed to do. Even though she is a member of the upper classes, Loretta feels an obligation to serve. From the memoirs of Loretta Janetta Velazquez, The Woman in Battle, 
a Doc South book distributed for the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill Library. If there was any justice in the war at all, it was a rich man's fight just as much as it was a poor man's. And when the time came for deciding who should and who should not take a turn on the battlefield, the chances ought to have been equal between the rich men and the poor men of drawing prizes or blanks in the lottery. When Loretta's husband enlists in the Confederate Army, she's left alone and makes a surprising decision. Here is Catherine Clinton, professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. I, I really enjoy Loretta Jeanetta Velasquez because she is such a controversial figure. And one of the controversies surrounding her was her memoir in the 19th century, where she details the fact that she was born in Cuba in 1842. Um, her father was a prominent Cuban and her mother was of Franco-American heritage. She was with an aunt in New Orleans in 1849. And as a young, beautiful woman, she became exposed to the U.S. military there. At the age of 14, she eloped with an American soldier. Her family was so opposed to this that they became estranged. When her husband went off to serve in the Confederate Army after resigning his US military commission, um, she wanted to go fight as well. She tried to convince him of this. She of course was consumed with grief and loneliness. She had lost three children. Um, and was still in mourning, but she felt the need to contribute, the need to be with her husband. When he refused to allow her to accompany him, she went off to Arkansas and disguised herself as a man. Harry T. Buford was the pseudonym she used, and she recruited over 200 soldiers and brought these recruits to her husband saying, here, I'm presenting them with you. Um, unfortunately, he died shortly thereafter. The Arkansas troops moved into the army, but during this period, she continued to wear men's clothing, masquerading as a Confederate soldier. But she also sometimes, when she was up in Virginia, would dress in a woman's clothing and go into Washington for information. We know she fought at the Battle of Fort Donelson where she was wounded but not exposed as a woman. We might say, well, how does that work? Well, both the physical exam for entrance into the army and the medical exams were quite pro forma, but she was at the Battle of Shiloh where she got to be reunited with the Arkansas battalion that she had raised. But the rest of the war, we find a lot of unverified data in her memoir, she uh, worked both for the Confederates and she may have also spied for the Union during this period. There are several scholars who have challenged her account of her own life. It's no surprise when she published her memoir in 1876 that it was challenged dramatically by Jubal Early, hmm. who accused her of being a fiction writer, a prostitute, a traveling woman, um, and called her work entirely one of fiction. I found it a bit surprising that um, we also have in 2016, a scholar echoing Jubal Early. Um, that would be William C. Davis, who also challenges all of Velasquez's account of her life. 
once again, Dr. Luis Borrego. And the desire in her, she, she talks to a family friend and she says, look, this is going to seem unorthodox. I need you to dress me like a soldier. I don't want my husband going alone. I want to follow him. He doesn't know. I need to meet him. Can you help me? And this friend time tries to talk her out of it. And, and she's so adamant. She gets a solid uniform. He makes it for her. He keeps her secret. And she starts raising a regiment back in New Orleans. And it, there's this sense that she comes out of nowhere. She, she gives herself a title. Very quickly, she's going to take on the name uh, Harry Buford. She'll always call herself Lieutenant Harry Buford. Now, what, what she's kind of capitalizing on in the Confederacy is the fact that at least at the beginning of the war, nobody's sure completely what are the chains of command, who in the mess of things, she takes advantage and is able to kind of, um, if you believe what she's saying, she's able to take the mess of the war and insert herself as a recruitment agent. Now, part of that recruitment will eventually take her to Florida, where she knows her husband is. She brings some men she had recruited to Florida. And when she has a private moment with her husband, when no one else is around, she says, by the way, it's me. And he's like, what do you mean? It's you. <laughs> and it's like, it's Loretta. And he says, what are you crazy? What are you doing? You're going to get yourself in trouble. It's like, listen, listen, this is going to work. You have to help me. You just say, I'm an old friend of yours from, from the military days. I'll help you recruit. It's going to work out just fine. And somehow he agrees. This. He's very hesitant. He's like, this is not, this is crazy. You shouldn't be doing this. But he agrees to it. And he says, okay, I'm sending you back to New Orleans to continue recruitment. She gets halfway, more than halfway to New Orleans when she gets the news that her husband is doing a training exercise and the rifle misfires back into him, killing him. So now she's on her own. She's still going to recruit. She returns back to Florida. She can't even cry. She cannot show. Remember that whole thing of how do you keep the masquerade going? She cannot show emotion because her husband's lying there dead. But if she shows emotion, everybody's going to know the game is up. And from there, through her recruitment, she's going to go in and out of the world go back and forth between being a woman, between being Loretta and being Harry Buford. And eventually she wants action. She doesn't just want to be involved in recruitment. Eventually she's going to make her way uh, to Northern Virginia, where according to her, she will participate um, in the first battle of Bull Run. She'll participate in the battle of Ball's Bluff and the culmination of her experience. Eventually she'll make it to, um, to the Trans-Mississippi West where she will participate in the, battle, in the Battle of Fort Donelson and in the Battle of Shiloh. And here, if you count everything she did coming in and out, she probably, based on her chronology, she probably serves in uniform maybe a year and a half to two years. That we know about, it's only three or four battles. Verifying the stories of soldiers like Velazquez and others is difficult. Records are sparse, and first-hand accounts like Loretta's autobiography are scoured for information. And while some of Loretta's claims, like her family connection to the painter Diego Velazquez, seem unlikely, historian Catherine Clinton says there is much that is authentic about Loretta's story. Other scholars have suggested that she took her experience and embellished it, but nevertheless, so many details 
within her narrative are so embedded in reality. And we believe that this means that she did have a wartime experience as a man, but she may have, um, like all good writers, uh, dressed it up for her audience. And in that way, she became really uh, a kind of popular celebrity. Uh, she traveled to Europe and South America. She um, wrote the book to support herself. And she's one of the 250 women who are identified by Deanne Blanton and Lauren Cook in their definitive work on women who disguise themselves to become soldiers, a book called They Fought Like Demons. So I am, um, I am uh, a champion of Loretta's voice. Loretta put out a memoir and men from Jubal Early to William C. Davis are totally discrediting it. And to call someone like Loretta a Confederate Kardashian, which has been <laughs> um, hurled oh at her, goodness. is something that I think does not show the proper regard for her account of her own life. She may indeed have fictionalized it, but she did spend a lot of time behind enemy lines. And I'm just excited that we can find black women and white women, uh, women from the North and South. And this is really uh, an important time to explore the legends and the narratives and the true histories of these dynamic women. Just about every school child has heard the story of Harriet Tubman's brave work on the Underground Railroad, in which she led scores of slaves to freedom, traveling hundreds of miles on foot, using the stars as a guide. Tubman felt that slavery couldn't be excised from the country in dribs and drabs. Dramatic action, she said, was needed. Dr. Kay Whitehead, professor of communication and African and African-American studies at Loyola University. Harry Tubman is such an interesting character in American history because she is someone whose story has been told and retold by everybody but her. She never wrote down her own story because she was not literate in writing. She was, of course, literate in everything else when it comes to nature, when it comes to reading by the stars, when it comes to understanding the landscape, but, but not in terms of writing her own story. So the work that historians have done to really piece her story together, to give a, a fuller sense of who she was and what her actual contributions were to American history, to helping enslaved people, uh, and to her work beyond that. If you were to talk to young children in school about what they know about Black history, Harriet Tubman's name will always come up. But they only know about Harriet Tubman in terms of being Moses, in terms of leading people to freedom coming out of the Maryland uh, area. They don't know what she did after that and how important Harriet Tubman was to the war, to the Civil War and her contributions. What I was taught early on, which is why I'm, I'm so drawn to the story of Harriet Tubman as someone who's from South Carolina, uh, listening to stories about the Kumbahi Raid and what she did back in June of 1863 when Harriet Tubman was under the command of Union Colonel James Montgomery. When she became the first woman, not just the first Black woman, but the first woman to lead a major military operation. I'm just imagining what it must have been like 
Baharia Tubman going into these areas, into these areas where there were plantations and enslaved people and informing them, along with the Union soldiers behind her, informing them that they were free and that they wanted to come and join her so they can make their way to freedom. She actually, during that evening, she, along with the Union soldiers, rescued more than 700 enslaved men, women, and children uh, along with what they call this Kumbahi Ferry Raid uh, during the Civil War. People don't know that she also worked as a nurse during the Civil War, not just as a spy who knew the landscape, not just leading Union soldiers, but also in terms of taking care of injured soldiers and taking care of injured formerly enslaved people at that point, because once they joined up, they were able to drop the bands of enslavement and move towards freedom because of her. But Tubman's most amazing feat may have been her involvement in a June 1863 raid deep in the heart of Dixie, South Carolina's low country. It's here where she used her talents to develop a spy network of scouts. Their job? To guide three Union boats ferrying black soldiers up the Cumbee River to strike at plantations critical to the economic viability of the South. And, oh, by the way, they freed more than 700 slaves along the way. Aboard one of the boats, Tubman herself. It all took place in the middle of the night, the gunboats quietly advancing, led by Tubman's photographic memory of where danger lay, scores of mines, which could have blown them out of the water and blown their plan to bits. Here's Katherine Clinton, author of Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom. Tell us about how she got involved in this river raid that was is so well known. Well, the Massachusetts governor, Governor John Andrew, asked Harriet if she would go with shiploads of African-American troops. So we had a real uh, subversive move in that these Massachusetts African-Americans were sailing down uh, braving the blockade and going in to uh, to the deepest part of the South in South Carolina. And we have to remember that this was the cradle of secession. This was where the secession declaration was made. And finally, um, in July of 1862, when the federal government decided that uh, Blacks whose masters were rebels could be enlisted into the Union cause, uh, military operations began. Tubman first went down there in order to minister on medical issues. She was known as a great healer. She was uh, anchored in Port Royal. She had been summoned down to Fernandina, Florida, where it was said the men were dying off like sheep, and she was able to minister to their fevers. Then, um, by June of 1862, it was clear that she could do more with her talents. She, a small black woman, was able to negotiate the back roads to discuss with African-Americans who were in the pay and under the control of the Confederates what their work was. So imagine that Harriet was able to tell the white officers of the Union Army where all the torpedoes were laid. These are stationary mines just under the surface to prevent any um, incursion by the Union gunboats. Without Tubman's intelligence, the raid would have failed. Again, Catherine Clinton. As I understand it, they couldn't, they, they had to, to skirt these mines, get around these mines. And she Absolutely. brought in this team of pilots 
African-American men who were expert on these rivers, knew where to go, and they figured out where all these mines were so that the larger boats could come in behind them. And without that, the raid, well, it couldn't have worked, could it? It wouldn't have taken place. And also the slave grapevine was used, and that was there was an all-clear sign that would be given, and then the enslaved people would pour out of their cabins, come down to the riverbank, and be rescued. And it was an amazing uh, all-night operation where over 750 enslaved people were spirited to freedom uh, by the 150 Black soldiers on the Union gunboats. And they were striking deep in the heart of Dixie. The Carolina dynasties of the Haywards and the Middletons were being plundered, robbed of this commodity, enslaved people. And this was meant to cripple their economy, to strike a blow, but it particularly to humiliate the Confederates, as it was a deep humiliation. It was reported in the Boston press that it was a woman who led this operation. And therefore, you can imagine uh, what the proud uh, crowing cock of Confederacy would feel about being bested by an African-American woman. Dr. Kay Whitehead, Professor of Communication and African and African-American Studies at Loyola University. This is something I think that we don't amplify enough because the type of intelligence, the type of wherewithal, the type of understanding it takes to be able to not just move in these areas, but to know which information needs to be gathered to then be put in the hands of people that can then use it to save themselves and also to free enslaved people is something that we have to talk more about. When Tubman and the Yankees left, the plantations were ablaze and their stocks of food destroyed. From the book Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom, by historian Catherine Clinton, author and Denman professor of American history at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Harriet Tubman, writing to abolitionist Franklin Sanborn following the Cumbie Raid. We weakened the rebels somewhat on the Cumbie River by taking and bringing away 756 head of their most valuable livestock, known up in your region as contrabands, and this too without at the loss of a single life on our part, though we had good reasons to believe that a number of rebels bit the dust. According to Whitehead, it was a turning point in the war. Can you talk about what that raid meant to the South? Because it wasn't just any plantation. They were historic plantations at the heart of the Confederate idea, even of who they were. We have to remember during this time, not only was she still an enslaved woman, she had freed herself. Uh, she had stolen herself, to use Frederick Douglass's words, but she had voluntarily chose to put herself back in enemy territory. So it's not just that she had crossed the line Black into slave states. She was actually in the heart uh, of where the Confederate soldiers were moving, which is South Carolina. Um, and so by volunteering to go down there, not only was she placing herself in incredible danger because she was enslaved and because she was known, but also because she was a woman in a band full of men on all sides of her. So the type of courage that it took to do the work that she set out to do after she had helped people escape into freedom, but going back down and leading these expeditions. I think one such one that stands out is with the 2nd South Carolina Infantry, that when you look at the Combahee Ferry Raid, this is a, a very significant place 
in terms of the Confederacy that using these ships, there were three small ships that were heading, uh, left Buford, heading for the Combahee, which is where they were on their way to. They transported about 300 men from the 2nd South Carolina Infantry. And this is the one that was commanded by Colonel Montgomery. And they also had I think uh, Company C of the 3rd Rhode Island Heavy Artillery, they were manning the ship's guns. So Harry Tubman was accompanying the troops. And by doing that, the work she was doing is helping them to figure out what the best routes were. Actually, one of the ships, the Sentinel, ran aground in St. Helena Sound. When they reached this area, and they said it was about 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning when they finally got these remaining two ships to arrive at the mouth of the Combahee River at Phil's Point. When they got into this area, they not only drove off several Confederate pickets and then they advanced up the river by going into these specific plantations, taking that specific area and freeing that many enslaved people was a financial hit that the Confederacy took. It was also a hit that they took in terms of their feelings towards being able to win the war. Many people said there was a turning point in the idea that the war would no longer be one that the South, although they believed they could win it for a long time, this was a moment when they had serious doubts that they could continue. We hope you enjoyed this installment of The Fearless and Proud and that you'll be on hand with us next week when we discuss various examples of women spies, including Southerner Belle Boyd, whose career in espionage started accidentally after she shot and killed a Union soldier who insulted her mother. And then the Union spying duo Elizabeth Crazy Bet Van Loo and her slave and counterpart Mary Bowser both worked together to form an underground spy network out of Richmond, Virginia. Until that time, I'm Jerry Willis. Thanks for listening to The Fearless and Proud. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music.